Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by. It is so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm talking to illustrator Ollie Hurst. Ollie's a fantastic illustrator working across a number of fields and I recently came across a post where he talked about how it's difficult to sustain a full-time illustration living from an editorial. Now editorial is often the gateway into the industry because it's less risk than a lot of other fields including advertising and design. But Ollie noticed the fact that these just really hadn't changed over a lot of time. You know, we've got the cost of living, inflation and everything else. And sadly, editorial illustration fees, in my own experience, has not really changed in more than a decade. So I wanted to get into the business side of illustration and pick Ollie's brain. And this is a guy who's quite new to the industry, but he's incredibly switched on, very forward thinking, and has some great advice for spreading our wings, tapping into those passions, and just bringing some more stability in times of uh, great uncertainty. Hello and welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast. My name is Ben Talent. I am your host. How are you all doing? Good morning. I'm sat here. It's Monday morning. It's chilly outside. I'm in my toasty little studio, which I am very fortunate to have in the garden, sipping a cup of coffee, and I'm feeling quite creatively energised. So um, I put out my second column yesterday for Design Week. I worked with Design Week on and off for a number of years. I used to illustrate regularly for them. I had a front cover in my third year as a freelancer, which was quite a circumstantial piece. I've done lets about musicians working, um, sorry, designers working in the music industry, including myself. I was running a project at the time called Quench Music. Um, but without going off on a tangent, I, I like the publication. I love the news features. They cover a lot of great things and they're a real great eye on the visual communication industry. So I talked to Tom Banks, the editor. I used to work with them back in a, a different era. And it was Angus who um, was the editor at the time when I first started working with them. But Tom took over and we had a good relationship. Um, so I continued writing the columns that I was writing at the time. And they've kind of evolved. We, we hit the pause button just like I did on the podcast. And eventually it resumed because, do you know, if you listen to this show... If you listen to the show over a period of time, you'll know that I place the ultimate currency on feeling, on feeling and mood, because that's everything in creativity. I've been writing about that extensively in what's going to be my second non-fiction book, The Creative Condition, the same title as this show at the moment. And the more I do it, then the more it's hard to get away from the fact that we as creative professionals are governed by feeling and mood and passion and you know our energy as human beings and that's everything um so what you know it's the same with the podcast the times when it's been infrequent and sporadic have been the times when I've not been particularly feeling like it's at the top of my priority list and I don't beat myself up about that I don't tend to look at it on paper and go well you know I've been I was making some money from that through a couple of kind sponsors you know, the, the sponsorship only covered costs, but that's beside the point. On my end of year spreadsheet, there was income from this podcast, but it wasn't a good enough reason not to do it. And that was something I talked um, in depth about with Dan Kieran on the recent episodes. If you haven't heard that one, do go and check it out. 
And we get into that sense of, you know, how flow and feeling must be adhered to. And it's all about psychology in this game. So whatever flexibility you have to, to follow the feeling and the mood and the passion, you have to do it. So as far as Design Week goes, the passion for my exploration of creativity, which I would say has been going on a lot of my life, but certainly consciously since I started studying design and visual communication, I've been obsessed with what drives people, what makes a creative person. And um, and the flow came back for that study and that exploration, and that's why the book's happening and the, the manuscript is up to 70,000 words. So I went back to Thomas and said, I want to write for you again. And, uh, you know, he's a cool guy and he's like, okay, well, what you got in mind? So I, I floated the idea of this ongoing exploration of the behaviour and nature of creativity because I just think... If I can articulate that in any cohesive way, which I, I hope I am doing in this book manuscript, that it will help so many people make sense of what often feels like a complete skull storm, <laughs> if that's a, a way to put it. You know the feeling, you're lying in bed at night and everything's whizzing around your head, there's a thousand million tasks going on and none of them are on paper and then you sit at your desk and you want to create but you're just bombarded and it's nightmare and it's so common. So I just want to help people to govern their own mind and their own drive and their own creative path you know because I believe that creativity is the greatest asset of, of humanity I really do I think it's everything I think it's what separates us from the animal kingdom I think it's what makes us it's the good side of the human race right we can do so many good things with this and I think that the way of the world at the minute and moving forward that we need creativity like never before and this isn't about artists sitting and painting an easel you know this is about fixing the big problems in the world with innovation and imagination and ideas and Sir Ken Robinson was a great proponent of that his famous lecture his TED talk do schools kill creativity was a a massive inspiration in terms of cracking on with his book and and, and picking up the baton almost because sadly Sir Ken passed away a few years ago and um the work that he did needs to be continued and I want to see it, you know, I don't care who's doing it, I want to see it, whether it's the likes of Tom at Design Week or Katie Cowan at um, Creative Boom doing amazing work and just spreading the word about great work and it just makes the world a brighter place. So that's what I'm doing, I've been writing for Design Week, the second column is out now, it's about tapping into personality and, it, and it, it's about almost Jungian psychology, so the assimilation of dark and light and you know, embracing everything about the inner self. It's, I loved writing that column. So that's the second one. The two are out now. Just go to designweek.co.uk. You can check it out. I'm really buzzing about the podcast at the minute, and that's why the episodes are coming thick and fast and why I wanted to talk to Ollie Hurst today about the illustration business because that's where things started off, and there are no better proponents of the illustration business than the sponsor of this show, Illustration X. Go check them out, illustrationx.com. They're a wonderful illustration and animation agency doing a whole panorama of creative work worldwide for global clients. People from all nationalities, they're a big agency with so many cool portfolios and so many different styles from live to lettering to editorial to advertising to performance art, the rest of it, they're film stuff. They're, they're a great agency. They're lovely people and they do so much great work for the agency and have supported this podcast to make it possible since day one. So if you're a regular listener, go and give them a little thank you. <laughs> um, but there's no greater proponents than those guys. Check them out. Um, I am just obsessed with creativity and I, I can't yet reveal, but I've been booked for a quite a big talk next year, a big festival, and I'm very excited about doing that. And the second book to the same title of this show, like I mentioned, The Creative Condition, it's coming out next year. There's a brand new deal for Christmas on my first book, Champagne and Wax Crayons, coming out this week. Keep an eye on my social channels at Pentalon or at Pentalon Pod and you'll see that coming up. 
I just want to tackle the badness in the world with what I know best, which is creativity. And I want to spread it. So it's gone from kind of me being this pedestrian over a number of years and just observing it and enjoying it in people and wondering what makes them that way and what makes me feel like that way in that, that certain time. And how can that be used in a cohesive way to fuel our creative practice? And that's what the creative condition is, really. And it's and it's coming to a head now, and it's incredibly exciting. So I want to make more of this. So I'm going to be doing some talks next year. I'm going to be advertising a talk to take to agencies, to take to schools, and to take to festivals. And I want to take it into businesses, you know, and prisons. And I'm, there's no boundaries. I want to take the lid off this thing. So thank you if you've been a regular listener so far. Welcome if you're new. You can support the show by re- leaving a review or uh, rating wherever you listen to this thing, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or uh, SoundCloud, or Spotify. It's on all the, the big channels. And you can also drop us some feedback. That's always appreciated. Spread the word. There are free ways to support the podcast. Subscribe, of course. Um, you can get in touch. You can suggest guests. I'm wide open. I just love doing this thing. I love talking to you guys. I'm going to be doing it for a long, long time. So anyway, I'm talking later today with... Uh, Professor Anna Abraham, who is a neuroscientist and a psychologist specialising in creativity. Now, if you haven't heard it already, go and check out the episode she did on the Blind Boy podcast. It's phenomenal. I could listen to Anna talk all day. She talks deeply about flow states, and that's what I'm going to be getting into with her on the show. So just tapping into that awesome flow when we're on top of our game and we feel energised and connected and one with the thing that we're creating and um, Anna just talks so jubilantly and passionately about creativity that I am buzzing about talking to her tonight. We've got Dixon Baxi coming up on the show again, Simon Dixon and uh, Paul Vabaxi, uh, founders of a, a wonderful agency doing great work. We've got Joanna Henley returning to the show, formerly known as Miss Lane. I think she's gone on a Joe Henley now. She's uh, she's another creative dynamo. We've got Adelaide Demoa coming back to the show. I'm still trying to make things work to talk with Mac Ferrari, founder of Bike Storms, doing some awesome stuff. Get in touch. Let me know what you want to hear. Um, so today's guest, Ollie Hurst. Ollie is um, very new to the game. He's been going a couple of years, and he's got this beautiful, slick digital style. And he works with a broad range of clients in editorial does a lot of kind of medical work and scientific-based stuff, which he's very passionate about, and we'll talk about why that is today. But what I grabbed from Ollie, so the, the reason I came across his work was uh, he posted on LinkedIn about the frustration of the lack of synchronicity and the, the rise of the cost of living and cost of everything and the lack of rise in fees in the editorial sector. Now, I've come across this. I've worked in that field on and off for the whole 14 years of my career. It was my gateway into the industry. It was Ollie's gateway into the industry. We're going to talk about why that is and why it's still a great starting point, but why ultimately it's very difficult to make it sustainable as a sole line of income in the illustration game. The reasons why, you know, we, we go deep into that, but I, I don't do a great deal of editorial work now, and it's because I was always a little bit frightened of putting my eggs in one basket. I wanted to create stability. It's why I write. It's why I have a podcast. It's why I do live work. It's why I do advertising work. It's why I do hand lettering and I do illustration, and there's a whole range of flexibility within that portfolio, and that was always a conscious decision. It's why I did art direction on films. It's why I've always moonlighted and done different things, because I felt that because I put my entire worth and my career into visual communication right from leaving school to now, if things go wrong, if you know, if, if, my, if the rug gets pulled from under me, I'm back at the job agency. I'm in factories again. And I don't want to be that, you know? 
that's why I'm pushing the writing. I'm trying to build the author career and everything else. So Ollie and I are going to get into that and why it's important to tap into all your passions, to have meaningful conversation with clients, to go after people where you can see your work fitting, and just to use your own life story in a front-facing way. And the thing with Ollie is, he might have only, only been going a couple of years full-time, but he's worked in agencies and, and he's, he's had his eye on this prize for a long time. And he's a very smart guy. I found him incredibly business savvy. And I'm not going to lie, I came away from our conversation remembering things that I once knew, learning things that I should have known and I didn't know. And it's a reminder not to buy too much into the currency of experience. Now, I love sitting under the learning tree of more experienced people in my industry. I've got this whole chain link of accidental mentors who've given me more time than they ever needed to to help me out. But I've also learned so much from people coming up new, from people in schools, from kids. And I think creativity is not an exclusive thing that belongs to those who've earned it, you know. So Ollie is way ahead of his years. And it's awesome to see. It's great to see. It's inspiring. It's encouraging. It's a, it's a real positive light for our industry moving forward. So more power to him. And I'm, I'm very honoured to have him on the show sharing that information. And I hope you get some value out of it. I've been an illustrator for 14 years and I love talking to illustrators. So while this show has gone far and wide and will continue to go far and wide to explore creativity in all its forms, I love bringing it back to that core run of illustrators and designers and visual communicators. And Ollie is one of those. So let's get into it. Let's not dally any longer. I've got my coffee here so I could bang on at you all day, but I'm not going to do that. Um, drop us some feedback if you can. Drop us a review. Subscribe at Ben Talon or at Ben Talon Pod on social love hearing from you not been hearing from you as much as I once did and I think it's because you know the numbers are good but I'm I'm a huge consumer of podcasts and I have to admit even the ones I love the most I don't really go and tag them on social and, and sort of talk to them so that's cool but I do love hearing from you so let me know if you like something in particular because it just keeps the spirits up <laughs> thank you again to the supporter of the show illustration x check them out illustrationx.com i hope you're good i hope you enjoy this do go and check out all his work because it's beautiful i'm gonna be sharing it on the socials enjoy this conversation so you're manchester based are you i am yes i live in ancoats um yeah. i'm not from Man- ancoats originally i'm i'm from witness originally not sure if you've heard of it before but it's like no, a... No, a big, i'm a big rubber league fan so i'm aware of it through that yeah. They're rugby town, um, not a rugby man myself, but um, they um, that's kind of all they're famous for, really. And they're uh, one of the pioneers of the chemical industry, so there's a lot of issues, mm. like, factories there. So, not not the greatest town to be in visually, but um, yeah, from from witness, um, and uh, it's kind of like I describe it on the outskirts of Liverpool, for people who don't know. Um, so it's probably about 40 minutes away from here. So I'm not a million miles away from where I call home, but I'm not. I'm not a mank, put it that way. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, and no, I lived there for nine years on and off. Uh, yeah, well, two stints in Wally Range and also in uh, Ermston and then Worsley was the last one. All uh, right, yeah. Yeah, and now down in Salisbury, moved south. Hopefully. That's a weather yeah. down there, I bet. Do you know what? I, I was quite surprised at just how warmer it's been this summer. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't. you know, I thought I saw, you know, it's all, it's all the UK, it's all a bit grey and... You don't have to take an umbrella literally everywhere with you in any season, like <laughs> Yeah, there is that. I mean, when when Laura and I first moved up to Manchester from London, I'd been kind of talking it down, going, "No, no, it's a bit of a myth. It's not that bad. It's not that bad." Literally, the first two weeks, solid monsoon rain, and I was like, "Oh, look, this is this. It's not this bad." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think people will 
how wet it actually is until you've been here for like more than like a month or so and then you realize yeah it's pretty pretty <laughs> wet <laughs> oh dear that's very true that's very true well let's chat about your background so i like to start right back at the start like paint us a picture of you know where you're from what's your what's, what's the kind of upbringing it's i always find interesting seeds of what the person goes on to do in that in that stuff absolutely um so i say i'm from witness it's kind of like that small town environment um just from a really standard working class family um i have one older sibling who was kind of you know almost like the catalyst i guess in my creative kind of interest because he studied it when he was kind of in high school education which then like kind of enveloped me in kind of that world um so i always kind of credit my brother aaron for kind of enlightening me to what creativity was initially to kind of kickstart that process off but um yeah i lived and studied and witnessed all of my youth and all of my kind of young adulthood and then um i went to norwich university of the arts to study illustration um it it wasn't any particular reason why norwich that like i didn't know anybody there or like it was kind of like a bit random but um, I had a foundation tutor um, at college in Witness I was um, being taught at who said, um, you know, he's heard really good things about it and it's got quite a good credibility at the moment for illustration in particular. Just go to an open day, see what you think, you know, see if you like it. Um, so I did that, loved it. Didn't really think I was good enough to get in, to be honest, because at the time I think it was rated one or even two in the UK in that course. So I was like, you know, it's a pipe dream at that point. Um, had the interview and it was really kind of intense. Like, you know, when you get that feeling where you just think that didn't go very well or you don't feel like it went very well anyway. Um, and then they offered me an unconditional offer on the car home. So, you know, proving the pudding really that sometimes your perception isn't the best perception of any situation. But um, so yeah, I went to went to NUA and studied illustration in 2013. Um, which, makes me feel a bit sick saying that out loud <laughs> so long ago um loved it three years there um and then obviously I wasn't from that area originally so for many reasons due to finances and just people not being there anymore because they'd left too I decided to leave as well and come back here um I kind of very quickly realized that like the most available jobs in the creative industry are not necessarily in art they're in design and at that point, I didn't really have a solid understanding of that. So that was quite a harsh reality check, I guess, when I came back home from university to think like, you know, oh, how am I going to continue doing what I love, but make money from doing it? Um, so rightly or wrongly, I did some free internships, which I know are quite controversial. But at the time, I just thought it was the best thing to do with very little understanding of the industry in general. Um, I gained some agency experience mainly in Liverpool um, just for small kind of design based agencies um, and then I uh, landed a job at Havas Links on their graduate program in Manchester which is why I live here and kind of the rest is history. I did that for three years and then I decided to kind of go it alone and pursue the illustration that I'd studied in the first place. Mm. It's interesting isn't it I find it interesting what you said about sort of stumbling across it through your your brother's studies yeah it's, to this day it's um a bit of an enigma our industry i think you know it's there's yeah. like, you know because a lot of kids draw 
to a certain age. It's a natural mm-hmm. form of expression. And sadly, it's perception is other than that. When you get older, you know, and people, you know, it gets this hobby tag and the rest of it, which I could talk about all day, but we won't <laughs> do that now. But it was the same thing. I had a mum who went to college and, you know, she's a very good artist. My dad was a decent drawer. My uncle used to write jokes with comedians and all these different creative endeavours. Yeah, wow. None of them did it to a point where they understood what the creative industry was or where, you know, they had all these amazing industries and career paths that were just not really told about. I mean, one of the best creative directors I've ever worked with who has done many, many big jobs and is a real, um, you know, a real mentor of mine. His dad still thinks he should have been a painter and decorator. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's, uh, it's a shame that that's the case. I know it's more accessible now because of the internet, but it is interesting how we all this kind of stumble through those formative times, you know, and I, and I wonder... I don't know, you, you can get caught up in that thinking, well, what about the people who don't have the bricks that we have or, you know, get, mm-hmm. that, get that little revelation. Um, from that point on, did you did you sort of get a sense that illustration might be something, I, know, I mean, I know you went for a degree, but I, I speak for myself when I say that I started my degree and I didn't truly know much about illustration or the industry, even though I'd, I thought, okay, there's a lot of drawing involved, that works for me. Yeah, I think, very good question but I think my foundation course I went on was quite instrumental to that kind of thought process um for those of you who don't know and maybe you still have no idea what I'm talking about but a foundation course is kind of like a crash course in like different disciplines within the creative spectrum so you can kind of then create a portfolio which is specialized to that to apply to a uni course um so I came into that foundation course with a fine art a level basically with a qualification to draw and paint that was basically all I could kind of offer at that point um so it was very much like critical thinking with observational kind of elements with it um which I you know fully understand and appreciate that there's fine art degrees out there but I think I just kind of didn't really have the passion to pursue it and was wondering what else was kind of on the table or could be um so I was recommended to do that and through that kind of process and that kind of curriculum structure it kind of introduced me to what illustration is and kind of the purpose behind it and the fact that you know it can be quite profitable if you if you kind of pursue the right kind of avenues with it so I think initially that was my kind of introduction to it kind of generally speaking um but I think just going back to what you said about like the the industry as a whole being an enigma um I know I've seen quite a lot of kind of discourse recently about, you know, people who haven't gone to university kind of raising the question of, well, do you even need to go to university and can you do this kind of self-taught and, you know, you're just wasting your money and throwing it into kind of this pit, but like there's no return on it. And to a certain degree, I, I, I kind of, you know, respect and appreciate that point of view, but I think the the element of university not preparing you for the creative industry for me anyway comes from the fact that a lot of the people who teach you in those environments have never done it they don't go into the commercial side of the industry they chose to go into the research academic side of the industry instead which doesn't require or need those skills that they've kind of never had to use so um that's not a critique of my degree whatsoever because i love my degree and you know it, it was right time right place and it definitely kind of prepped me for certain things but I don't feel like any uni course is really quite good at prepping you for that. And I think it's genuinely something that they kind of can't prep you for. Those kind of skills and experiences can only be learned 
as and when you need them and they're different for everyone. Um, so kind of what I discovered I didn't have, other people may have and vice versa. So kind of saying to everybody, you need this, 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 this before you go into the industry for me is counterproductive because you might need it, but you might not, depending on what it is that, that person wants to do. So, you know, I don't I don't know whether you have any thoughts or feelings on that as well, but that was just kind of my point of view on it from Yeah, I agree I, quite strongly. I agree. I agree quite strongly. And I think that um I think soft skills are huge. And I think, you know, when I say soft skills, I refer to adaptability and um the ability to work in teams and, and the, all these things that you know that allow us to kind of take that partially blind journey into industry and like you say you you kind of have to do that because the whole industry is built on creativity and, and artistic expression to a degree and problem solving and i think that we there's yeah. a lot of personality and personal nuance involved in that so there isn't a there isn't a catch-all blueprint for any industry really so there's a there's always going to be a degree of that and i am um, i studied at uclan in preston and that was a course that was i came from a very similar path as you actually I, I studied a BTEC graphic design at Keithley College similar town to witness I guess a post-industrial town different kind of mills you know but a similar kind of thing where it, we were kind of tucked away in this college with a lot of builders and I loved my my BTEC course because it did give me that taster and I knew that whatever I tried I loved drawing to be at the core of it and storytelling um but from that point onwards it was a bit of a blind journey but what UCLan brought was conceptual and lateral thinking and you know, and we, and we we had assignments on editorial briefs and different things. So we did get to dip our toe and we had a professional practice module and visiting speakers, which were all very valuable and, and did, I guess, counter, like you said there, the, the tendency for lecturers to have a lack of experience in some areas, commercial experience, I guess. Um, but I did feel like I came away kind of equipped, but then it was, there was this cold six months where I really suffered from the, the cutoff of tutorial input and a peer group and, and what I really underappreciated was the value of that space, that big studio space that we could come into for three years and make a mess and not worry about rent and overheads and everything else. And yeah, so that was a big come down for me. And I spent six months working full time and really kind of, you know, struggling to think what my next step was. And I did luckily kind of find the right connections and people who we were able to form a bit of a creative network with and suddenly reignite the passion. But yeah degree courses don't they they don't you don't come out like a lot of degrees with a certificate and a kind of a right to walk into a good job because there aren't that many especially for illustration like you said yeah i think i think people are shocked when i tell them because as i'm sure you've seen that i'm quite active in the community or at least i, I feel like I, I i have to be something kind of like that's just like a need of mine that i kind of feel like i, I have to support people in the way that i perhaps wasn't when i was starting out um but i think People are really shocked when I tell them there aren't any illustration jobs. They don't exist. When you're an illustrator, you don't work for anyone other than yourself. So, like, obviously, you're working for clients on a commission basis, but there aren't any full-time illustration jobs because when you're in these advertising and design agency environments, it's not a soft skill, like you say. It's a, it's a niche skill that kind of, like, isn't needed day-to-day -day for every client. It's not the right solution for every creative problem. So, um. I think again that's kind of like the reality check side of things for graduates where you realize that you know this isn't just something where i can just kind of walk straight into an agency say hello and get a job it's it's not going to work like that mm -hmm. um so i think you're right by what you're saying in the sense of kind of like you do need to kind of experience those environments initially yourself to understand how you navigate them because it's not it's not the same for everybody 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, so the invariably that tends to bring, unless you're very fortunate and you get some really good early breaks and find some flow, um, you do tend to to start stumbling. But then there's a there's a lovely there's a lovely uh, unpredictability about that, which which feels terrifying a lot of the time at the beginning. Yeah. But when, when you make those chance connections and you, and it starts to open your eyes to new possibilities, that I found that really exhilarating. I mean, we we both it seems we both have quite a strong foundation of editorial work, at least in those early early times in our careers. Mm. Would, that be, would that be fair to say about you? Yeah, it's even something that I recommend people to do today. I think because um, I'm a really big believer in kind of this making with strategy in mind, which I can kind of elaborate on what I kind of mean by that. But um, just to refer to kind of the editorial viewpoint, it's it's got the least risk. Like if you think about the spectrum of like what our industry is made up of, of editorial, advertising and publishing are kind of like the main three pillars as I kind of refer them to. Um, editorial is the one where unless it's a cover for like The Guardian or something, which is like you're going to be nationally printed and everyone's going to see it. It's essentially kind of locked away on a website somewhere or locked away inside a publication on a shelf somewhere. And if it doesn't really go to plan or it's not like the best commission and art directors ever kind of worked with. It, it's not the end of the world. It's not going to ruin someone's career either way. So I think in that regard, I think the easiest break, if you want to phrase it like that, is in editorial. And that's why I kind of work with people who are graduates or kind of transitioning careers and kind of want my advice. That's that's the advice I give them is no matter what you want to do, whether it's in advertising, publishing or editorial. Editorial initially is kind of the way in. And um, for people to understand what you're capable of, how you can work with art directors, you know, what your commercial appeal is, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do believe it is for that reason that it has has the least risk involved. Um, and you'll know yourself, Ben, when you're pitching yourself to any client, you don't want any risk at all in their mind or any kind of seed of doubt because it's it doesn't really matter how good you are. If there's any seed of doubt at all, that is what's going to kind of trip you up. Um so I think just having an awareness of that initially was definitely missing from my point of view. And that's why when I myself looked for advice and kind of spoke to people, um, that was advice I was given. So I'm kind of passing the battle on to say like, look, this is this is not me just kind of saying it because I'm wanting you to kind of move into a space that I feel like you're working best. This is kind of how it works and how it can work and, you know, try it, see if it works for you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a wonderful gateway in and, we did sort of have a heads up on that in that regard. You know, I remember going down to do New Blood DNAD exhibition in 2006 now when I graduated. And I remember Steve Wilkie, my lecturer, sort of saying, well, you know, you're here, you've got your portfolio. Why don't you go and see someone? And I kind of went, what now? I can't, no, I can't, I'm not ready. I can't do it now. I'm not ready yet. But, you know, I think he knew that for the reasons you mentioned there about the low risk that a lot of our directors would be willing just to have you through the door for five minutes to have a quick glance at your portfolio. I mean, it does seem a little harder to get face-to-face time now because people are juggling so much work more than they used to be, perhaps. And um, as I'm sure we'll talk about, budgets haven't significantly gone up, at least yeah. in my estimation, in that time. Um, but the the risk thing is real. Someone said it's tomorrow's chip paper, and no matter how beautiful yeah. the work or how bad the work. And I actually, it's funny you should say it, but my first project for The Guardian was a front cover for... Oh, wow. for the film and music and I'd, I'd done a handful of bits you know big issue when I, I worked for when Saturday comes football magazine mm. the but, big issue with the first commission as well that's funny you say that really? yeah that's quite funny yeah and uh, and anyway I thought yeah you know I'll be thrown in some page 76 or something with a spot illustration when they get if the Guardian do eventually mm. buy and um 
God, I, I would have got myself such a state doing that front cover. And it was this rigid, poor version of my style. And I was gutted because I thought, I've blown this. That's that's really nowhere near my well, best. It's a joke the deep end initially. That's like... It is. And, and, and I think I put myself under so much pressure because of that. But the, the, to your point, the lack of risk, it wasn't awful. And and actually, two days later, I got another job off the back of that for the, yeah. for the Guardian Sports section. Yeah. So at that point, I thought, oh, God, my career's not in bits. Okay, mm-hmm. right, okay let's, let's get it together and relax a bit now. And, you know, yeah. but editorial is wonderful for that, actually. And and also just the very fact that, okay, that's not a good thing that the budgets haven't got too much better. But that, again, brings less risk. And it means that people with lower budgets are perhaps prepared to take a gamble on somebody who is new and doesn't necessarily need massive budgets, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's like I'm, I'm a father of two now, so my risk, you know, my, my kind of bottom line is a little higher than it used to be. And um, But when I was starting out, you know, 200, 250 quid for a spot illustration, that was good. That was, you know, a half of my, my all my costs back then. So. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I, I could get by on a couple of commissions, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's um, something to kind of be aware of. Again, I think a lot of kind of people's kind of crippling anxiety is due to just inexperience. Like when you when you graduate, you feel like everyone knows everything and actually they don't. They're just kind of like you trying to figure it out. And that's in all walks of the creative industry, not just illustration. I speak to graphic designers, photographers, you know, film directors, people who are in different elements of what we do, because we all kind of share that connection of we're all creative, I guess, and we're all kind of working for somebody in terms of like a reduction capacity. Um, but they all kind of are just kind of fathoming it out, I guess, as they go along. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the editorial pricing kind of conversation is something really interesting at the moment because it's kind of a hot topic um I, I wrote a linkedin post about it recently which i know kind of prompted this whole kind of scenario we sit and um, we're sat in talking to each other today but um for, for me i think it's down to the fact of i'm slightly contradicting myself here because yes editorial is the only way in but it isn't the only thing you're able to do so i think people in those scenarios and you probably felt similar yourself then when you were kind of only getting editorial work is like well what what else is out there what else can I do or how can I make that happen um and I'm you know 75 percent of my workload today is editorial so it's not necessarily something I've moved away from but I think in doing so much of it you realize that it isn't great pay it's quite ruthless timelines in terms of you know, if you're working for newspapers like Guardian, you can sometimes be asked to do something within the same day. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, that that to a grad and even someone who's like been doing it for years is a terrifying prospect. It's it's not an easy job, but you don't get compensated for the kind of stress involved or the time that that actually takes away from your life and like <laughs> you as a human being as well. So I think if I had any kind of longer term advice for people is that kind of, branch out I guess is the best way to kind of think about it and think about how you can apply the same editorial kind of whether it's topically or um kind of just from a principal point of view so what kind of subjects you're um, tackling um, and kind of how your process can be applied to different areas of our industry um because editorial as great as it is and as lovely as it is to work for these great publications um they it's not sustainable 
like the, the the lifestyle that you have to lead in order to make a living off of editorial illustration is intense mm-hmm. um so from not just a financial point of view but from you know a motivation mental health energy level point of view it, it's it's hard it's not easy um so i think what how i personally have got around that is to kind of think about my work as like a process and like how can i apply that process to editorial to advertising to publishing but without compromising who i am as both a human being and a creative um and i can definitely kind of chat to kind of where my brain sits with that and kind of the advice i give to people as well as myself um but i think it's important to kind of understand that you know when you graduate you don't have to just be an editorial illustrator or an advertising illustrator or a publishing illustrator you can kind of be in all three of those sectors and still be a great illustrator and i think if you kind of look at people who are great illustrators to you in some way and you start to think about them in a more kind of strategic by frame and kind of what is actually working from them from more of a business point of view they they are people who have that approach rather than a style um and i'm a really big advocate for not using that word style especially to like client facing situations i think it gives them the impression that you are all about how your work looks Mm-hmm. and not necessarily about you know the process involved and the approach you take um and i think if you were to kind of ask me what style means to me it's so much more than how something looks it's you know the process involved what clients you work with who you are as a person your life experience all of that kind of feeds into what my approach is and that's what makes my work mine mm-hmm. um and that that's essentially what i've tried to leverage through um, mainly my life experience and how that kind of tailors into the subject matters and the clients that I work with. Because um, I, sh- I should have mentioned actually before I came on and introduced myself is that um, I have a condition called congenital heart block, um, which basically, in, um, without sounding boring, is basically my heart rate is a third maybe of what it should be at resting. So I would essentially be in a coma without it. It's not strong enough to sustain my life. So. I'm fitted with a cardiac pacemaker and have been since I was three. I'm 28 now and I have one replaced. It's a battery, so essentially when it runs out, I have to get it replaced again. Um, I'm on my fourth device now, so I think I'm due a replacement maybe next year or the year after. Um, that, I appreciate my sound terrifying to you, but to me, it's just my life. I don't know any different. So, um, you know, science, health and technology and these kind of subject matters kind of govern my life in a way, I guess, without me even realising it, which I think is where that unconscious interest in them comes from. And that's what clients really appreciate, especially in those domains, because those types of topics and subject matters need someone like me, I feel, in order to get the best out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you need someone in it who's actually genuinely interested in those topics and wants to allow the people into them and make them more accessible um which is a lot a lot of what i do nowadays in terms of the clients and the projects that i take on um so that that was a slight tangent but that was kind of some background information as to you know why i do what i do um it's it's really interesting actually and i did i you know i was looking on your website and i read up and saw about the pacemaker and i thought I, I'm, mm. I'm very interested and very fascinated by um silver linings but maybe that's not the right word but disadvantage is advantage 
you know, yeah. as, as yeah, an, yeah. Or an edge, you know, mm. it sounds to me like, you know, you, that makes you the guy or at least some, one of the guys who can, who, like you say, who can, and maybe it's not even something that's tangible to the naked eye or the passerby, but yeah. it's there and it makes that work alive and it does, it breathes new life into it. And I think that's really interesting, actually. And um, I think that, you know, that I come across a lot of examples of this and I, and it's something that I see time and time again. And I, and I think it's a wonderful thing about creativity. Is it can be subversive and, or it can be obvious. But yeah, I mean, that, that I think that's really ama amazing that actually you do have this breadth of work within kind of medical and, and those areas giving your story i think that's yeah yeah and i think um i saw a post recently actually by used to be a creative director of mtv rich too his name is you might have heard of him i'm not sure but um he posted something on instagram yesterday actually that i kind of really related to and he kind of said this kind of thing of you know your story can be your art was kind of what he said and it kind of struck a chord with me because that's essentially what i've done without even realizing it um and i think there's a there's a danger to the outside world if you if you kind of write that principle on paper that like you're almost selling it out and you're almost you know making it commercial for the sake of making it commercial because we all need to pay bills and make a living and, and, and cash but hopefully i'm giving off the impression that you don't need to do that but you can still be successful commercially um you know i don't work on cardiac topics all the time it's not always about pacemakers in fact i've never actually had a client job about pacemakers but it's it's the essence of being essentially you know bionic and having that relationship to science and technology and being totally reliant on it you know if that was to disappear tomorrow i probably would disappear with it too mm -hmm. so um it's that idea of you know i'm i'm so wedded to those topics in a way that perhaps you aren't or someone else is that i maybe understand them slightly differently to other people as well and therefore i can bring something different and more unique and engaging out of those topics that make it more of a human kind of principle rather than just being like, you know, here's an amazing breakthrough or here's an amazing piece of technology and look what it can do. You know, mm. it not trying to sound egotistical, but the, my life experience can perhaps bring a different edge to that that someone else can't. And it's that idea of, you know, exploiting the disadvantages that you've experienced in a way, I think is probably the the um, viewpoint you were trying to get across earlier. Um, mm. Completely. I have a conversation lined up tomorrow night with a with a local friend I've just met on the. I met a lot. I meet all these people on the dog walk that seem to end up on my podcast, and I um he's he's recently diagnosed as as a autistic, and yeah. it's a very functioning level. You know, you wouldn't know it in passing. Perhaps mm -hmm. maybe maybe you would if you're also autistic. But he's very fascinated by this, and now since he's found out, it's made so much sense of what he's done to or how he is in his life. But again, I'm really interested because he was talking about these advantages that it brings and these and this different way of thinking. And I, I'm endlessly intrigued by that. And to go back to what you were saying, I think you hit on a great point there about, so, you know, again, style is this very disposable term, which is probably the wrong way to describe it. But it's a mood, it's an essence, it's a all-encompassing thing that, you know, in my, in my own instance, that that kind of rug, like rugged style that I do, it's not a choice. It's how it's how I draw, but it's also a state of mind. It's it's being from a town like Keefley and being from this working class kind of gritty area. It's a product of all the conversations, the people I've met, the the stories I've heard. You know, all these different factors, subconscious and conscious. That really, that sounds complex, but it's not. It's do it's just doing you, and it's drawing how I draw. It's telling the stories that I feel good about telling. And I think sometimes we we overcomplicate these things and go looking for. It was uh, Jarvis Cocker put it really well on Adam Buxton's podcast 
recently, but he talked about, you know, going to art school and having this idyllic vision of what it was to be an artist because they dressed cool and having this <laughs> lofty vision of what he was. And it was only um, after, yeah, <laughs> it was only after falling out of a window and breaking his arm did it literally bring him back down to earth. And they started something about his mindset shifted and he started telling stories from his own life about, you know, broken romances and all these kind mm. of down and dirty experiences that came on to embody what Pulp and Jarvis's music were about. And I just love to see that when it's a part of just a part of somebody's being. I think that's what a style is, really. You know, well, it's authentic, isn't it? It's you. Like, I think as soon as you start to emulate somebody else or follow a trend or give people what they think they want, mm -hmm. you can't sustain that because it isn't you. Ultimately, you will take over and you'll start doing it how you want to because, you know, this is hard work. And if you want it to be, you know, longevity and have it have a career in it, you you're going to have to have that on the table at some point. Otherwise, your mind's just going to take over and your subconscious will just say, I don't want to do this anymore. And you'll pursue something else and it'll stop. Yeah. So I think, you know, the the quicker you come to realise that and the un the understanding from, you know, the internal side of you that says, like, you know, what what makes me me? How can I bring that out in my work in some way so people know that it's mine? Yeah. That That is what sells. That is what gives you the longevity. That is what people relate to. And it's not just from, like, an artist-to-artist -artist point of view. It's more so a client to artist point of view because they, you know, they know what what you can offer them every time they come to you. It's not kind of this lottery of you know what what's Ben going to bring to us today. We approach him with this brief. They know exactly what they're going to get, and they're coming to you because they want that thing. Yeah. Um, so I think you know you're a really good example of it. Like you said, it's like you've got a really distinctive style visually, but there's there's more to it than that. There's you know there's sub levels to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I always, I always use the kind of slightly pretentious. So apologies, but it's it comes from like the linguistic side of illustration, where the word itself actually comes from. And I, I, you may know this, I'm not sure, but it comes from the Latin to illuminate, um, which is illustrare or something. Don't don't know whether that's pronounced right, correctly. But um, you know, if you consider what that word itself illuminate means to kind of shine a light on something, see a different side to something under the surface that's what I want my work to do essentially and that's what I hope it does for people who are both in those communities I work in and also the ones that are just kind of seeing it as they're passing by or on a shelf on a shop so I think you know thinking again more deeply about the word style and what that kind of offers to clients in those environments is really important um, and I always kind of use the analogy of you know, people come to me for portfolio advice as well as career advice. And I always say to them, like, look, put yourself in a client's shoes and look at your website or your, you know, printed portfolio, whatever it may be. And I appreciate that's a lot easier for me to say than you to do if you're the one who's made all the work. But I think you do have to do that from time to time. And I still do it to this day where I've, you know, take sentiment out of everything I've made completely and just look at it face value because that's what they do. And look at it and say, you know, does it feel cohesive? Does it feel like the same person's done it? Does it feel authentic? Does it feel interesting? And, you know, if the answer to all of those questions is no, then why? Start to dig into it. Start to kind of understand yourself as to what's working, what perhaps you need to let go of, you know, how can you change it? And all these questions start to arise that, yes, create more work from you in the short term, but you'll get benefit from it in the long run because it's that idea of, you know, you're putting yourself into what you do and the authenticity shines through them. Um, and, and for me, I think that that is the reason for my success. I think if you were to remove that story and still do the work I do, it, it doesn't have that, you know, that appeal anymore from my point of view.
um, it, it doesn't make sense as to why it's so focused in those areas. It, it, it doesn't have that kind of human draw to it. Um, and I think I am that real advocate of pulling the human out of briefs. You know, I get, I get briefs thrown to me on all spectrums of complex needs from clients in terms of like, you know, I've, I've, I've just tackled one that covered everything from biotechnology to implants to sleep disorders to, you know, things which are inherently human. But the way they spoke about them initially to me was like, this, this isn't human whatsoever, what you're telling me. So like, where's the human in it? Tell me, tell me what the human part of this is. And that's what I'll work with. Um, and when we got through that barricade of, you know, I don't need to know all the complex details of what you're talking about. I just want to know what this eventually is going to do for people. That's when I started to relate to the content more and I brought more interesting perspective to the content that the client then really appreciated because they were completely blind to it because they'd been so involved in, you know, the writing, the editing of it, the technicalities of it, the, the accuracy of what they were talking about. And to, for me, that's that's not relevant. It's, the, you know, someone reading that content and digesting what client's telling them, that's ultimately the feeling that they're going to get and that's ultimately the the impact that the client wants. So I need to know what that feeling kind of is or the, what they would like that to be in order to kind of interpret it in a way which feels human. Yeah. Um, and I think that is something that I'm a really kind of strong advocate for is making sure that that thread runs through every project that I take on, no matter whether it's talking about, you know, the human body itself or space or technology or whatever it may be. Ultimately, we're all people living on planet Earth that kind of relate to that content in some way. And if you don't, it's my job to kind of make you feel like you do. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, I love what you said there about... Um about that about the the overall about in that you know that said but what's the origins of your style then because it's a heavily digital style and um finances quite bluntly so i think i was um quite shockingly working in textiles which i tell people you know that's completely polar opposite to what i do now when i was at university um i made um it, it's very conceptual and that's probably where like the conceptual side to what I do today kind of originated from but um I made um a experience I guess is the best way to kind of think about it inside a uh, surgical gown which kind of mimics that internal feeling physically of what it's like to have a pacemaker um and kind of through embroidery illustrated the gown with like imagery and um kind of visuals which spoke to stories of fellow pacemaker patients I'd been on forums with and chatted with and that kind of vibe. Um, so, you know, saying that to you now, you might be thinking, where, where the hell did an iPod come out of all of this? But, um, you know, when you leave that educational environment and you don't have access to those big, expensive embroidery machines and the resource and physical space to be able to do that kind of work anymore, you simply can't do it anymore. So you have to kind of think on your feet and think what you can do. So um, I kind of got a part-time job in a pub, saved some money, bought an iPad and the, re the rest is history. <laughs> um, there's no kind of, you know, deep and meaningful to it. I'm afraid it's just a case of I had resources and I was making a certain kind of work. In my opinion, it's a little bit of a blessing in disguise. So I think I would have limited myself quite a lot if I continued down that very enveloped self inward kind of path I was going on, which was exploring like 
my history and my life and my condition and what it means for me, um, which was valid, definitely. But I think I suddenly realised that like it was very inward projecting rather than outward projecting, which is what I hope I'm doing now. Um, if that kind of makes sense to you from someone who's never really heard that before. but um, It makes complete sense. I mean, I spent the last two years working on my next non-fiction book, which is called The Creative Condition, the same as his podcast. Mm. And it's, you know, it's these 20 plus conscious and subconscious years of being fascinated and observing creativity in people. So I don't see boundaries the, the way people do, uh, you know, oh. increasingly. I don't, you know, I think creativity, it goes back to exactly what you were saying about it being more than a style. If a person's creative and you're telling stories and you're doing it in a way that's pure to you as a personality, you can transcend a lot of barriers, be that a discipline, be that a medium. Yeah. And necessity is a great driver of that kind of change too, you know. Absolutely. So it's just if you don't have the things, the tools, then you have to do it in another way. Or, like, or you just don't do it. So that, that's nice people. I say, like, you know, without without sounding blunt about it, but maybe I am and maybe this is slightly controversial, you know, don't, don't say, like, you know, woe is me, I've got no money, I can't do this. You've always got, you know, things at your disposal whether that may be fancy things or pretty mundane things you do have things at your disposal to be able to do something with and creativity is all about having those obstacles to move around when you're in those live client situations you will never well say never say never but you will very rarely have opportunities to do whatever you want mm -hmm. it'll always be working within some kind of parameters um some are more strict than others, yeah, but I think the principle I'm trying to make is that there's always going to be some kind of obstacle in your way that kind of presents you with some kind of, whether it's a, a physical problem or a creative problem or a logistical problem, or, you know, something that doesn't allow you to just do whatever the hell you want to do. Um, so I think using your environment to your advantage in a way is, is really good practice of doing that as well. It's a case of, you know, thinking creatively, not to kind of make it into a pun, but it's about thinking creatively about what you have at your disposal and what you have access to that you can exploit and use in a way which is, you know, unique to that circumstance you find yourself in. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's just all about that, like you say, the creative problem solving, which creativity is arguably based all around. Like that is the foundation of creativity, in my opinion, problem solving. Um, whether it's, you know, working on some personal work for yourself or whether it's in a live client situation you are always trying to solve some kind of problem visually that's kind of what we do um i don't know whether you kind of agree with that but um that that's how i see it anyway it's definitely relates to what i do in both a personal and professional sense yeah i totally agree with that yeah and, I'm, and again for the same reason the same process of exploration with creativity i've also you know come to consider advantage and disadvantage um as complete as as you know flipped so it's like i you know in my own circumstances i'm very clumsy and haphazard and um you know not graceful in the slightest and um but that is that's part of the genesis of my style because that's that's yes. how i draw and if that's how i talk on this podcast that's how i write my stories that they're, they're very different disciplines and mediums only one of which i'm formally trained for which is illustration um, but the same voice comes through in all of them because I learned that it was essential to do that with my illustration. And therefore I'm able to write stories without getting too hung up on what's, you know, what's correct prose, what's the, don't get me wrong. I have an editor who kicks my ass grammatically and the rest of it, but it's essentially yeah. I, I'm, I'm telling the same stories in a, in a different medium. And I, I adore that. And it was Graham Woods who was one of the founding members of Tomato 
incredibly forward-thinking design collective and, and art collective. They didn't really put a label on what they did. It was a applied arts, I think was how they described it. And it nearly oh, I've never heard of it. Absolutely, I've never heard of it. Fantastic work, you look back at it. But, but Graham studied at Central St. Martin's in the late 80s, and I talked to him on one of the shows, and he was saying how the restriction and the lack of computers and the lack of kit on that course was the making of him and many other artists because yeah. again it forced you to think differently and to find things in your surrounds and it goes back to the soft skills like you said it, it just teaches you to be mm. responsive and, and to problem solve and to get over hurdles which like you say are, yeah are constant and many and what well, i think that's a good thing there about um what you just said there about kind of that you know adversity kind of pushing you into certain scenarios that you possibly wouldn't choose to go in but by going to those scenarios you you know discover a new door to open or whatever that that really spoke to me then because I think that's it that is a lot of what my career is based on in a way I guess because I think you know I don't think I would have moved halfway across the country unless you know I felt like there was a need to because that was the only opportunity to do what I wanted to do mm -hmm. um I, I don't think I would have kind of um jumped at the opportunity to kind of work in what I do now if you know there wasn't kind of that element of well I need to I need to make money I need to do something I need to kind of get this off the ground in some way and I think fear as perversely as that sounds does drive a lot of these creative decision making processes of like you know let's just try it let's see what happens what's the worst that can happen mm -hmm. um and I think you know that 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 for me anyway is quite a healthy mindset to being because I think it it forces you outside your comfort zone and it kind of gives you that um you know the drive to do it when you see you know these successful situations appear from places that perhaps you didn't expect them to mm -hmm. um and you know you, you shock yourself sometimes you know some of the projects I've taken on um I've just illustrated a, a TED talk stage in Vancouver it's like 130 foot long when that happened my mind just went oh like you know I would have never ever predicted that to happen but it's that kind of you know fear and anxiety in a way driving my decision making process and these opportunities that prevent themselves um when i've kind of sometimes unwillingly put myself in those situations to say you know well what's the worst that could happen mm -hmm. don't get a reply to an email or you know that's that's a little bit of my time wasted on something but you know in my opinion time is never wasted on something it's always something that can be used yeah you know, so I think that that element of jumping into the deep end a little bit, seeing seeing what happens is kind of key to development and progression in both personal and professional senses, I feel. It is. It's really crucial. And um, I say it time and time again, but I refer to it as, and it, it, I borrowed this from, I can't even remember who did the talk because it was my wife that saw the talk and she came back and told me about it, but somebody referred to the circle of competence. And it's something that really helped me because I, I had a habit of stepping way beyond my abilities and, and, and kind of getting overexcited and going, well, yeah, you know, I can do that. So I was too much deep end. I would go yeah. you know, do things that, but then it, that was good because it helped me form that circle of competence without, mm. you know, minor mistakes and, and fuck ups. Yeah. It was kind of like, well, okay, I overstepped. I saw the reasons I thought I could do that, but actually I got there and either it didn't feel good to me or I wasn't quite as able as I thought I was. Absolutely. And, and I never did that with high stakes. It was always playful, fun, collaborative stuff. Yeah. That I did that. But actually it did help me to form this, you know, like I said about the difference between, the, well, the lack of difference between the writing and the podcasting and everything else. These are just things that I was doing anyway in some form in my life. 
you know, because I like yeah. to talk creativity and I like to write these stories about odd people. And it was like, okay, well, you know, there's a difference between just going completely somewhere where you've not been trained or you don't belong or jumping in a bit of a deep end and actually pushing yourself a bit further. And and actually that goes back to the, the whole stability and the broadening out beyond just editorial thing that we talked about. Mm. I used to, and I don't know how you've kind of pursued other areas, but I used to see, you know, I would do an editorial illustration and perhaps it was in football or whatever else it might be. And suddenly I thought, well, actually, if you remove that from the page in the context it lives in for that job, yeah, I, you know, I could present that in a way that maybe sits on something else, whether it's uh, it, maybe it's been brought to life in an animation, you know, in motion graphics. Yeah. And I yeah, did end up doing the same kind of work for magazines and I did them for like Premier League trailers and things eventually. And it took somebody coming to me and going, actually, the mood and the essence of that style that you've done for whatever project would work. In my case, it was on an E4 trailer for Skins, and that came off the back of oh, wow. a silly throwaway poster that was in the same style that I used to do my editorial work. Yeah. But I would also pull out textures from an, you know, an illustration. And sometimes if the budget was a bit less than I would have liked, but not disrespectful, I would think, oh, okay, well, what more can I get from it that justifies taking the time to do the job? And mm. the topic let, fell, you know, fed into something else that I wanted to work in, I would then pull aspects of that illustration and then re, you know, reformat them and repurpose yeah. them and, yeah. and create something that perhaps broadened my chances of getting into some other fields. Is that something that you've done? Absolutely. Um, so a, a real key piece of advice that I give people is this speculative angle to kind of thinking about clients and projects. Um, and what I mean by that is basically taking things that already exist. So it might be like a magazine cover, a book cover, an article headline, you know, whatever it may be, a brand, you know, you name it, the kind of the sky's the limit. Um, you can kind of think about it more in that aspect of, okay, let's say this brand client commission publication, whatever it may be, is is real, it's on the table. What what essentially could I do to kind of, you know, think about this in more of a live client setting? Um, and it comes back to that idea of like making with strategy in mind. Um, I think when you're a graduate in particular, you don't, you just genuinely don't know how to do that because you've not had experience of doing it. Because um, going back to the thing I spoke about earlier about university lecturers not necessarily having that commercial background to kind of bounce off, it isn't necessarily prioritised in a way that I feel like some courses should. Um, that's a whole different conversation for a different day. But um, the point I'm trying to make is basically the sooner you start doing that, the more believable your work becomes, the more professional it feels, um, and the more targeted you can make it in terms of who you're actually talking to. Um, and it comes down to that element of, you know, assessing who you are as a creative and a human being as well, and, you know, tapping into those interests in a strategic way. Um, so the people I speak to, I always tell them to kind of think about, like, it can be anything. It can be, like, a brand of clothes you wear it can be a publisher you like to read books from it can be a band you like to listen to music with you know it, it doesn't matter what it is it's just the element of you're making something that's for our real world we exist in and there's like an actual intended purpose to it um and i think going back to what you said about the element of risk there isn't any risk when you're doing it for yourself it's fake in that sense with a with a kind of professional intent yes but it's fake it's not real you know, so there's no one going to kind of edit it for you, you, you know, that you're in control of the whole process. Mm -hmm. So it's very beholden to your skill set and what you're capable of kind of achieving. So like, um, you know, mock-ups in Photoshop are quite accessible nowadays, whether it's, you know, free ones or paid ones. You can kind of um, acquire 
mural mock-ups and vinyl mock-ups and you know the, the again the sky's the limit and I think as soon as you start to apply your thinking and your physical craft in these places you, you're doing the work for the art director um I think my experience of art directors especially in the editorial world is that they're so busy that people just expect them to reply to emails and you know do everything that actually isn't their job um, so I think, you know, it's really disheartening when you send an email to an art director and you don't get a reply. But what I kind of enlighten people to realise is that that's normal. Like when you think about like what their job actually is, their job isn't replying to people who are submitted to them. Their job is to direct the artwork they're being paid to direct. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you think about it from that point of view, you think, oh, you know, actually maybe not getting a reply doesn't mean to say they haven't seen my work. Um, and I think as well, like, there's no point in doing these speculative projects and just sharing them in what is essentially a void of social media unless they're targeted in some way, you know. So, again, taking that element of kind of fear and anxiety to drive you to do things, you know, tag the brand, tag the art director if you know them. The, yeah. the, worst, the, the worst that can happen is they don't want you to and you've apologised. That's literally the worst scenario. <laughs> so, yeah. for me, I'd rather take that risk and risk the opportunity of getting the reward out of it and just kind of not, doing that and allowing the anxiety and fear to paralyze you and not doing anything at all in the first place. Um, But I think just going back to what I was saying about the speculative work, it's important that, you know, it's rooted in your interests and like you as a human being. So don't, don't make work on politics if you're not interested in politics or, you know, don't make work on football if you're not a football fan like I am. So I think it's very dictated by the person making the work and the interest that that person has. Um, And ultimately, you know, the types of speculative work you take on are the areas of clients you'll attract. So you want to attract people who, you know, whether it's from an ethical point of view or from an interest point of view or from just, you know, kind of you as a person make make sense to make the match. Mm-hmm. Um if that kind of relates to you in any way. But um Yeah, massively. And I and I think, you know, we all sometimes quite rightly have a tendency to put clients or people on pedestals. And you know, we do that with good reason because we have these objects of affection or, or these publications that we dream of working for, you mm. know, whether it's a New Yorker or a, whatever it might be. Yeah. But I think there's a, there's something to be said about finding the balance between highly targeted, but also just stuff you put out into the world that you made for something that meant something to you, like you said, because actually we can't always, we can't put everything in our portfolio and we can't fine tune everything for everyone. But actually, like you say, by focusing on the things that matter to us and the people we do want to work for, or we think we can bring value to that's one track. But then, you know, I've, I've had both instances. So I once I did a very quick drawing kind of a mixed media illustration of a Adidas forest Hills shoe, because I particularly love this pair of trainers that I had going back yeah. years now. And literally with the same afternoon as putting it in my portfolio, I got I got a query from Next to do to do children's shoes illustrations that would be printed onto wood around their stores. And oh. and it came off, you know, it was the biggest by, by far the biggest paying job I'd had at the time. The speed of that turnaround just shows you that it's all possible. Yeah. On the flip side of that, I've had stuff where an art director has had the vision to pull an aspect of a style in a completely different uh, an illustration in a completely different sector. Mm. in a way that i would never have envisioned which then kick-started this process of seeing all these other new markets it's yeah. all, so again it's not hanging everything on one thing but it is also well like you said well worth targeting and what i would also follow up with is i was able to get three dream clients in my first three years of, of, of being an illustrator simply by going and telling them that i loved their products 
and I was able to bring something yeah. to that in the way that I do my work. And I remember one creative director saying, brilliant, you've made my life a lot easier. He said, I get bombarded by people who love, it was WWE, WWE, the wrestling. He said, I get bombarded by people who are good at what they do and are wrestling fans. But your persistence and your kind of, like what I was doing at the time was responding to the weekly TV and sending mm. over, you know, whatever, a variation, my take on whatever it was. Yeah. It's not, you just make my life easier because I have to find people to make artwork for this brand. And yes, I have a lot of choice, but the people who knock on my door and, and, and do it in a nice way and are not too pushy, I'm going to respond to that because it just saves me time. You know, you're there and I know that you like yeah. what we do and I know you're into it. So, it, you know, it's yes, the pedestal is valid, but actually they're just people who've got to do a job and they've got to buy Well, this is, it comes down to the thing I was talking about earlier about just being human. You know, we're all human beings. So I think, you know, the, the, the more you pull that out of your own work, it's something that I'm, you know, really kind of passionate about doing my own, but I think anyone can do it in a way that suits you. Like, you know, yours is quite organic mm. and it feels like a human being has made it, not a computer, which is the kind of human element that I see in it anyway. Um, it, it, it's more relatable. It's more it, from both a business and human point of view. Um, and I think um, just going back to what you said about it opening kind of avenues for speculative angle as well. Um, I'm just thinking back to my first New Scientist cover that I did in 2020. Um, a year prior to that, actually, to the day, which is really weird. Um, it was in like summer 2019. Um, I'm not sure what I was doing at the time, but I was just making kind of speculative work. I was still at a full time art direction advertising job. So, um, you know, didn't have a lot of time. And therefore, when I had free time, I was you know, rightly or wrongly using it as illustration. So <laughs> it was very intense because I was like creative nine till seven most days, but then, you know, coming home and then eating a meal and then doing stuff until I go to bed and the cycle continued. Um, but I made a speculative New Scientist cover by literally going out and buying a New Scientist cover where they just kind of shoved stock imagery on the front of it, basically. Um, took the headline, did my own version of the cover, sent it to the art director, and then a year later to the day, they commissioned me to do a real one. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it just it goes to show, like you say, if you take that time and energy to kind of make the approach targeted in all ways, not just addressing it to the right person, but, you know, using a piece of their content, showing them what you bring to it that, that they haven't had before, and that new perspective that can give them something beneficial from, you know, both sides. You get a new client, which is great, but they also get a better visual interpretation of something um, and make it more meaningful, perhaps, if it relates to you in some way. You know, make those connections clear, because like you say, that they, they appreciate you having done that work for them, that uh, theoretically they would have to do themselves if you haven't done it for them. Yeah. Um, and it's that idea of not allowing the art director to, you know, have to have put two and two together in their own head. You're not asking them to say, you know, imagine what I would do if you put my work on this wall you're essentially, you know, slapping them in the face of it and saying, you know, here it is, take notice, I can do it. You know, you can't say I can't do it. It's down to personal preference whether you like it or not. And yeah. um, so I think it's just that idea of, you know, reducing that element of doubt, like I discussed earlier, and giving them the strongest foot forward you have to say, you know, if you were to pay me to do a job, this is what I would do for you. Yeah. Do you like it? Basically the question you're asking them. And of course they can say, you know, not quite right from a tonal point of view or you know don't like the aesthetic or whatever and there are always conversations that are going to arise that's that's what makes things creative but you're you're not asking them you know 
well, imagine if I did this on that and, you know, if that colour was this colour or, you know, this this felt like this or you're not giving them that element of doubt. Um, and they're always the conversations that even in pitches lose you the pitch because they're the element of doubt. So as soon as you remove those elements of doubt from the conversation, it's literally just a question of personal preference from the art director's point of view. That's the only kind of deciding factor then. Um, and in my experience anyway, that's worked very well for me. Um, in terms of taking an art director by, by the scruff of the collar and being like, please pay attention to what I'm giving you because it's relevant, it works. I'm yeah. showing you what I'm capable of doing and here it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes, it takes time. I'm not going to take you know the nicety away from it. I'm a big believer in being real um, and not thinking about the world in general with rose-tinted glasses on because some things aren't you know <laughs> very nice. They, are, they do take hard work. They do take long hours illustration is definitely one of those things it's not something that will just happen overnight for most people um but you can definitely speed up the process by doing that yeah i did exactly the same thing i used to do the same thing i used to mock it up mm. badly because i didn't have graphic design skills but i used to copy <laughs> off on the you know in the place of yeah let's stop photograph where i felt i could bring mm. something more and people do you know it doesn't it's not about that piece being perfect it's about getting it on their radar showing yeah. them that you want to work for them and going that extra mile to prove it in context. And at the end of the day, you could, you leave it there. And then, it, and, but then mm. it's also about the nuts and bolts. So once, you know, it's about the follow-up, you know, don't be afraid to send a follow-up email if they didn't reply, because Absolutely. like you said, yeah. it's not the job to reply. And, and, you know, I've been doing this 13 and a half, 14 years. I've got some major, major clients on my client list, but I've, it's been about three weeks since I got a reply off an art director, you know, and I've sent, maybe getting on for a hundred emails yeah that's fine i'm not gonna mm. lie there's always that slight dismay where it's like oh is my email yeah. working properly or is, it, is anyone actually listening mm. <laughs> but, yeah but i've had i've had art directors come back four or five years down the road and go i always wanted to work with you and i always liked your emails i was just mm. busy and an opportunity never came up but thank you for reminding me because now here i am and i've got this project and and that's what happens and it's a game of odds but also, it's you know, again, it's about channeling those. I always say there's great value in the negative emotion spectrum. Nobody chooses anxiety, doubt, um, fear, whatever they are, but we have them because we're human. Yeah. Therefore, if you can find a way to channel them into into your work or say something, then again, you know, not to, that's a bit, another big rabbit hole. Um, and I've kept you long enough, but you have to encompass everything, the good and the bad and the time consuming and the quick and all those stuff. And if you can do that and you get to a point of acceptance and hard work, then I think, you know, you really do improve your chances of uh, whatever success is for you. Absolutely. And I think I'm also asked quite often, you know, what, what do I say to an art director when I reach out to them, which again, I can kind of relate to because I had no idea what to say to art directors when I first started contacting them. I just wrote what was probably an overly formal email, but, um, I think my main advice would be, you know, like say they're human beings with no time at their disposal. So brief, being brief is very kind of important in the sense of, you know, just give them the information they want. Don't tell them your life story, just, you know, a kind introduction, who you are, what type of content you kind of, you know, prefer to illustrate. Um, and I think there's kind of more to it than that because there's kind of more technical things you can do to help out as well, which, um, I'm assuming you're aware of Ben, but maybe you're not. But um, I was told by, I think they were an art director at the Washington Post, maybe on Twitter. Um, he, he posted like a screenshot um, of like the folder that he puts all his illustration submissions in to prove to people that like, you know, look, I'm seeing your work. 
please don't send me a million follow-up emails because, you know, here's proof that I'm looking at your work, but I don't reply to everyone. So, like, here they are in a folder, which I thought was quite nice of him to show because that's, you know, again, kind of being real about it. Um, But he said, you know, please, like, include words. Like, for me, it would be, like, I enjoy illustrating themes on science, health and technology and things that, like, are key words because then when a brief comes in that is those subject matters, He'll search his email submissions list for those keywords and whoever's put them in the email will then obviously be considered. Um, so I think, you know, being quite vague isn't necessarily helpful and being more specialised, mm-hmm. you have genuine passions for, definitely is. Um, and I think just on that same front of being like authentic and genuine, don't be afraid to kind of reference something else that they've worked on when you're introducing them in terms of how you've come about the contact details or... Um, again, it just shows you that, you, you know, they're not a name and a number on a list to you, the people who you actually genuinely want to make a connection with and work with. Um, and it, it, again, it just shows that like you have the interest in what it is that they do as well as hopefully the interest that they have for what you do. Yeah. Um, you know, this industry is very much a two-way street. And I think if you expect a lot of giving for not much work on your behalf, it, it, it's not going to happen, quite frankly. So, um I think it's trying to find that balance of spending your time wisely and not necessarily working harder, but working smarter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree completely. Be, be concise, be friendly, be polite. And, you know, like you say, the formality, I couldn't tell you the amount of emails I've had from whether it's new grads or students wanting advice from me where they haven't used my name. Not even hello. It's just straight into, I'm hoping you can help me with. And I just, I, I actually go back and bollock them. I'm like, not, not, not aggressively, but I'll say a lot. Yeah you need to address that it's not i'm not too bothered but you're not going to get far if you're addressing people who you're asking no. at the time when they've never heard of you and they don't you know <laughs> you at least have to say hello such and such how's it going yeah. kind of thing. you know it's just yeah. it's not different to when you speak to a human being it's just um it's the basics i implore mm. anyone to get the basics right keep it short be formal leave them everything they need to see like you say the links tell them what you do and then get out you know and it's like yeah. it's, keep records yeah. you know it's i mean we could sit mm-hmm. here and do that stuff all day but i just think um keep it simple and basic you know and make visual as well i think we're all visual creatures but especially art directors they share that visual kind of needs that we both have mm-hmm. um and we're all human beings so i don't know about you ben but if there was a list of emails and a hundred of them had no images in them but one of them did i picked the one with images in to read because you know it's more interesting so yeah. i think don't overload your email with loads of artwork, but you know, embedding two to three web-based versions of your work that are relevant to that client, I think is the most important thing to underline. Yeah. Um is is key really because it pulls your attention to that email that maybe some um, you know, down the further list haven't. Um and I think just to kind of wrap up what I'm saying, um my dad left me with some advice. Um I can't remember what it was. It was I think it was when I'd graduated and I was in that kind of position where I'd had to move back in with my parents and you kind of feel like you're taking a little bit of a step back because your independence has been removed and you know you're reliant on other people again and you've gone from that living on your own to living back with mum and dad and it feels a bit like oh was that the right move and you know was was this going kind of thing um and he, he just kind of sat me down and said look um you know if you, if you wait until you're ready you never will be yeah. and that's always stuck with me um and it's even something that I tell people to this day now because it applies to like most things in life, but definitely, you know, illustration is definitely one of those things I've applied that to. Um, it goes down to that, you know, letting fear and anxiety drive you, you know, 
just do it. D don't be afraid of what's going to happen because the likelihood is something great is going to happen, but that can't happen unless you do it. Yeah. Um, you know, it sounds like I'm, you know, teaching babies to suck eggs kind of thing, but, you know, you 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 need to have that initial let's step forward first before anything's going to happen yeah. um, and, and take it step by step. Don't think about, you know, how I'm going to work for the New Yorker. That's a great goal to have. But realistically, that isn't going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. So uh, what can you do to make that happen in terms of stepping stones? Yeah, focus on step one, but believe step 100 can happen because it definitely can. I think, the, yeah. I think that's the thing. And I, I do think that's great advice about that you will never be ready. I think that's absolutely perfect way to put it because you're not, and we never are, and I never, I'm still not, you know? Yeah. I mean, in 14 I years, I'm not ready. I don't think I ever will be. <laughs> I never thought any of what I've had the opportunity to work on over the last four years had ever happened to me. Like, yeah, never. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't sit with like a diary planning out my whole life doing all of this. It just happens. <laughs> I think every freelancer relates to that in some way, whether it's financially, professionally, career-based, client-based, whatever it may be. I don't know what I'm doing next month, let alone, like, you know. I don't know what I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> it's just the way things are. And I think the sooner you kind of get more comfortable with that mindset, the easier everything will feel and the quicker ultimately everything will happen because you took that, you, you took yourself out of that pressure cooker of like, you know, taking time bomb mentality of like, you know, I need to have this done by a certain date in my head because, you know, everyone's expecting me to do that. And, you know, I've always had people come to me and said, well, what do I say to family members who are saying like, you know, oh, you've just graduated. What are you doing now? You know, <laughs> quite frankly, tell them to sod off. It's none of their business. Like, you know, you, you, you're the best expert in this scenario and you can, you, you, you know what you're doing in that sense. So don't let anything else deviate you from that path. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, say um, there's a phrase that Anthony Burrell is famous for saying where it's, you know, um, be kind, work hard and be nice to people or something along those lines. And that's something that really resonates with me. And it's, it doesn't matter where you're from or what background you're from or where you live, but that that's a, that's an applicable kind of mentality that is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when you're kind of in that desperation mindset, you can feel a bit like, you know, you're, you're reaching out in all directions, hoping for a hand to grab on and, you know, it feels a bit like an endless task, but if you, if you kind of have that mentality and stick to it, it will definitely happen quicker. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Ollie. And um, it is, yeah, work hard and be nice to people. It's famous, but it's so true. And that's why it's so popular. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think that wraps up everything. I think we've had a, we've covered a lot there. I think that's going to be of immense value to people, experienced and inexperienced. I think you've uh, spoken very wisely there. So thank you for taking the time <laughs> to do so. I say I'm quite new to the industry, to be fair. I've only been doing this now for five years, but I was essentially like, catapulted into this world that i had no idea what i was doing in so i've had to find my feet quite quickly and that's why i think a lot of people relate to my story in some way or kind of take value from it because i'm not you know someone with 25 years of experience preaching down to people who are just starting saying like oh you should be doing this and this and this i'm essentially one of you guys you know i'm, do I'm doing it myself um i'm just maybe doing it at a level which isn't necessarily now classes junior and more kind of advanced in that sense so some days it takes me a little while to realise that myself, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just keeping on trucking, I guess, and seeing seeing where life and everything leads.
yeah we'll keep up because you're producing fantastic work and um and yeah like you say i'm, a, I'm the same i'm very passionate about creativity and, and and helping people much like others that help myself so good on you for doing that and keep that up too cheers thanks i appreciate it and thank you so much for having me thank you very much to ollie hurst for taking the time to join me on the creative condition podcast today we've got some strong episodes coming up we've got professor anna abraham we've got adelaide demoa coming up before too long we've had dan kieran we've had oliver Luff, oliver duffy lee awesome input on marketing for agencies and individuals go check that one out kerry lyons creative coach i love the variation on the show we've had firefighters we've had people working in um child secure children's institutes it's i love it i just love creativity and i'm going to continue delving into it so keep an eye on the updates new deal out this week on champagne and wax crayons my first book which is a what's and all account of what it means and what it feels like to turn creativity into a career it's the ups the downs the madness and everything else still very proud of that book seven years on new deal ahead of christmas on the print edition there's a new ebook edition out it's, it's i can't remember what i put it out it's a fiver but get in touch um, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to offer discount for schools, particularly schools with children who are from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, because that's a, a big passion of mine, is making sure that the, the youth and the next generation have access to creativity and know about our world, because it's so good for people's mental health, and particularly people who haven't had a lot of love in their early lives. So get in touch. Happy to do your deals on the books uh, in that area in particular. Same for community libraries. I think they need all the support they can get right now with this I won't swear this morning because it's Monday morning. This government, this flowery, lovely government that we have, we love creativity and all the good things in life. <laughs> Thank you to the founding sponsor of the show for being there from day one, Illustration X. Go find them at illustrationx.com for all their wonderful animation. Illustration portfolio, portfolios, their great industry work. And their news section, which gives you a lovely behind-the-curtain peek into our industry and our world and the projects that are going on might be useful enjoy go of course go and check out the wonderful guest from today's show ollie hurst cheers ollie for checking in thank you for listening guys be in touch drop us a review that would be awesome and subscribe to the show it really really helps have a great week love you